Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode listens to the music from Schindler's List, made in 1993. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. I have been simultaneously anticipating and dreading this episode for quite some time. The score to Schindler's List ranks up there as one of the greatest compositions by John Williams, and I have been anxious to examine it in detail and share what I have learned with you. But also, I have not been looking forward to watching the film. After every viewing, I am an emotional wreck for at least a day. It's a film that really takes hold of your feelings, puts them through a vice, and squeezes tight for three hours. After watching the film in preparation for this episode, I couldn't move for about 20 minutes. I stared at the blank TV screen, wiping away the tears that kept flowing, processing new insights that I made into some of the characters, and understanding some of the decisions John Williams made with his score. It's an achievement that should be praised on so many levels, particularly Steven Spielberg's decision to wait until the time was right to put this story on the big screen. Spielberg was asked to direct the story of Oscar Schindler way back in 1983, after he made a lot of money for Universal Pictures with E.T. The novel by Thomas Keneally had just come out a year earlier, and the rights to the screen version were purchased by Universal on the provision that Spielberg direct the film. Now, to Spielberg's credit, he didn't think he was ready to make such an adult film. He was then known as the master of the blockbuster, and a film about the Holocaust wouldn't contain killer sharks, big explosions, or mind-blowing special effects. He was afraid he didn't have the mental capacity to handle the task, and he was afraid the public would laugh at the thought of Spielberg tackling such a weighty subject. It's interesting that Spielberg recommended Roman Polanski as his replacement, but Polanski also declined. And what's interesting about that is that Polanski would later make his own Holocaust movie, The Pianist, in 2002. The folks at Universal asked Spielberg again after he completed Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, impressed that Spielberg was willing to go to a really dark place for that sequel. He still declined, though. But he thought about trying to move away from big action movies and pick the color purple for his next project. That film did very well, and it was up to Spielberg to either pick Schindler's List or Hook for his follow-up. He chose neither, opting for Empire of the Sun. Spielberg was finally ready to do Schindler's List after he finished work on Hook in 1991. Yes, he had realized that he could still be a child at heart and still be a responsible grown-up. And that helped him greatly when discussions got serious about making Schindler's List. One of the stipulations of making Schindler's List was that Spielberg had to direct Jurassic Park for Universal Pictures first. Jurassic Park was insurance for the studio in case Schindler's List bombed. As I said before, it was a movie about the Holocaust, and though it took place during World War II, there were no big battle scenes to draw in the male audiences, and no glamorous movie stars to attract a female crowd. Plus, Spielberg's previous attempts at serious dramas weren't well received. If Schindler's List bombed, Universal would be okay because they knew Jurassic Park would be a big hit with Spielberg at the helm. Before Schindler's List, there were a lot of films that dealt with the Holocaust, 
but none of them really told the story of the Jews in concentration camps and those who died, so Schindler's List was entering new territory. Some of those movies told stories of people who lived elsewhere in Europe, or they shied away from the realism of the war. Sophie's Choice is probably most remembered for its gruesome portrayal of the horrors of the Holocaust, as Sophie has to make that terrible decision about which child goes to Auschwitz and which one lives. But that story is told in flashback, and it takes up maybe a third of the movie? Schindler's List was really the first to not flinch away from telling the stories of those who survived, and really to honor those who died. Spielberg had most of his usual crew with him for the shoot, including producers Kathleen Kennedy and Gerald Molin. One of his newest collaborators was Janusz Kaminski, a Polish cinematographer who had been working in Hollywood since the mid-1980s. He and Spielberg first worked together on a TV film Spielberg produced in 1991, and with Schindler's List being shot in Poland, Kaminski was a logical choice to be hired as the director of photography. If you look at Kaminsky's filmography before Schindler's List, you might wonder which one of the previous 10 films he did impressed Spielberg. Was it Grim Prairie Tales or that Vanilla Ice movie Cool as Ice? What a turnaround chapter Schindler's List would become for Kaminsky, who flexed his artistic muscle with Schindler's List and started a wonderful collaboration with Spielberg that continues to this day. I have a feeling many of you know how challenging the shoot was for Spielberg because it has been chronicled in great detail in books, magazine articles, and television interviews. He got so depressed during filming that he asked Robin Williams to call him often for a big pick-me-up. And to help alleviate the mood, Spielberg often turned his attention to the post-production work on Jurassic Park, which, as I mentioned in that episode, was in the process of making major movie history with its stunning computer-generated visual effects. Working on the score to Jurassic Park was John Williams, and after Spielberg showed Williams the first edits of Schindler's List in early summer 1993, Williams had a reaction that has been told and retold and retold and retold so many times that I would be surprised if any John Williams fan has not heard it. I do suppose that there are a few of you who haven't heard it, so I'm going to let John Williams tell the story when he first showed you Schindler's, what did you say? And I was like, I don't bawl, but I really, I was choked up. And I said, Stephen, I just have to leave the room. And I went outside and walked around, collect myself and back in to start the meeting. And this is just about verbatim. I said, Stephen, you, this is a great film and you really need a better composer than I am for this film. And he said, I know, but they're all dead. <laughs> that was... So I went on to become the, the live composer. I've been to six concerts in which John Williams has served as conductor, and I think he told that story at every single concert. It's a great story to tell, but after so many times hearing it, I'm starting to roll my eyes every time I hear him tell it, whether it's on a concert stage or in a TV interview. In the end, it does show how humble Williams is about his abilities. And I'm sure he still feels like he wasn't the right composer for the task, but I can't think of anyone who was alive at the time and working as a professional composer who could have perfectly captured the heart and soul of the story and the message it conveyed. Before he began composing the Schindler's List music, Williams had one final season with the Boston Pops to complete. 
I'm sure it was an emotional summer for John Williams, saying goodbye to an orchestra that had given him an occasional respite from film scoring for 14 years. But he had a parting gift for them. The Boston Symphony Orchestra was going to record parts of the score to Schindler's List. The decision came more from a logistical need to record in Boston than a feeling that the BSO was the best orchestra to perform this score. The music would feature a soloist who would not be able to travel from New York City to Hollywood to perform the score there, so Williams felt the best option was setting up a recording studio in Symphony Hall in Boston for one day of recording. That soloist was virtuoso violin player Itzhak Perlman, who already had a connection to John Williams, as the maestro said in an interview. Steven Spielberg made a beautiful movie, which most people will remember. And in one of the early scripts, it called for a violinist to play a Jewish gentleman entertaining the German officers in, in an officers club. And the scene, alas, was not used. But because it was part of the original plan, I said to Stephen, we have to have a violinist to do this thing. So I asked Itzhak Perlman if he would come and do it, and he said yes. Knowing I was writing these notes for Itzhak Perlman, knowing his sound, I, it really led me, I think, where I hoped where I needed to go. I had known him for 20 years or more, Itzhak. Every time I saw him, this is before the film, he would say, John, when are you going to have a film that I can play the violin? Every time I see him. So finally, this came along, listen, I called up and I said, Itzhak, I have a film for, that you will be interested in. Oh, I don't know. I don't think I want to do a film. <laughs> so, yeah. I said, I think you should look at this thing. Maybe it's something exactly. you should want to do. He came crazy. So he came up to Boston. We recorded Symphony Hall with the orchestra there. And he looked a little bit of the film and he just, he couldn't, it's so emotional, some of the scenes in there. He didn't want to look at it to rehearse. He said, we'll just play. I don't want to see it. He brought his great art to the film, and, uh, which embraces his feeling, his history, his all of, all of it. You know, so he is a. It is the film, it is the music, it is his voice. Um, it suggests so much rich history of all of the all of the story. As we will hear later on, Perlman's voice really does come out in his violin solos. So professional was Perlman that he and the orchestra were able to record all the music featuring him in one day on September 1993. Williams wrote an underscore that plays for 51 minutes in the film, including the end credits. That means there's only original score in about 26% of this 192-minute movie. Besides Williams' music, there is a lot of other music in the film, and as I was watching it, to prepare for this episode, I was astounded by the amount of source music there is in Schindler's List, meaning how much music the characters either sing or perform on instruments or is played in a restaurant or on a radio for them to hear. There is about 34 minutes of source music throughout the film, and it is all naturally woven into the plot. Just about every scene featuring source music requires the characters to hear it, so, in this case, the source music is not gratuitous or put into the film to help sell records. The first instance of music in the movie is about seven minutes of classical music played on a radio and then in a restaurant as we are introduced to Oscar Schindler and the scheme he is cooking up to infiltrate himself within the Nazi army. Included in that seven minutes is the famous tango music from Por Una Cabeza, which was played to great popularity as well in Sin of a Woman the year before. 
We get the first notes of John Williams' music 17 minutes and 42 seconds into the film, playing underneath a 12-minute montage sequence. This comes as the Jewish population of Poland is forced to relocate from their lavish homes into cramped apartments in a small part of town. We're introduced to the various Jewish people that will follow throughout the film as they apply for work permits, while Schindler starts production at his enamelware factory. We begin with the performance of the main theme, which will be the theme for Oscar Schindler. Even though Schindler evolves from an unfeeling money grabber to a man with a conscience, there is no sense of heroism in his theme. And that's a great choice by John Williams to compose a main theme that reminds us that even though this man risked his life and nearly bankrupt himself to save hundreds of Jews, millions more still perished. The notes flow through the octave with ease, but as they do, each phrase of the theme either ends just one musical step higher than when it started, or one step lower. Then, a musical pulse takes over the remainder of the cue, and it's reminiscent of music from the song Tradition in Fiddler on the Roof. It consists of two repeated notes that keeps up the energy, and the flow keeps moving forward.
There's a scene when Schindler talks with two Jews who he wants to invest in his factory. The music for this two-minute scene is not a part of the original soundtrack release from 1993, but it was put into the 2018 release by La La Land Records. I'm glad that was made publicly available, and it rounded out the music for this comprehensive montage sequence. The feel of the music in this scene is a bit different from what plays in the rest of the montage sequence, which makes me believe that the scene was a late addition in the editing process, and the music was put in to keep the flow of the sequence.
The orchestra rarely rises above the dialogue, but there is a nice moment late in the sequence to enjoy as the workers learn about their jobs in the factory. Williams composed another theme for this film, and this one honors not only the Jews who died, but those who survived the war. I feel that this music could have emerged organically as a variation on a centuries-old Jewish folk song, but it is 100% John Williams. On the soundtrack, the theme is called Remembrances, and that's fitting because its first appearance in the film score comes as we see men sorting through the contents of suitcases left behind by Jews who are boarding a train to their deaths. The theme plays on a haunting flute as the camera focuses on discarded photographs and continues through the remainder of the scene.
The 15-minute scene portraying the horrifying liquidation of the Polish ghetto where the Jews lived goes without music, and rightfully so as Spielberg aimed to bring a documentary-style feel to the movie and in this scene particularly. With music, it gives the viewer a small way to escape from the reality of what is being portrayed on the screen. Music comes in at a crucial moment, though, when a girl walks out of a building and is noticed by Schindler, who is watching all of this from a hilltop. The girl is wearing a red coat, the only hint of color in the body of the film. A pre-existing Jewish children's song plays as we see the girl walking through the ghetto as people die around her to create a sense of innocence that floats around this girl. As she finds a hiding place, Williams comes in with his own music, used mostly to play pianissimo, or very quietly, as the German soldiers search for people hiding in the walls. The music acts as a bridge between the children's song 
and the Johann Sebastian Bach piano piece played on screen by a German soldier. That seems to be the main reason why Williams was asked to compose that piece of music. It doesn't really add to the scene. In fact, it might distract from it since the purpose of the scene is to be quiet before all hell breaks loose again. The clarinet in the queue is played by Jura Feidman, an Argentinian who made a lucrative career as a soloist for about two decades before he was asked to perform on Schindler's List. Feidman's part was played in Hollywood with the studio orchestra, but so seamless are the performances that even after knowing that the score was performed by two different orchestras in Boston and in Hollywood, and knowing which cues were performed by each orchestra, it's not easy to tell the difference. There was actually a third recording for the score done in Toronto, Canada, where our chorus performed the haunting Hebrew text during the disturbing scene when the bodies of the people killed during the ghetto massacre are exhumed and burned. This Canadian chorus performs to music played by the Hollywood Orchestra. And again, it's so seamless that you would think everything was done at once in the same room. We have to give kudos to music editor Ken Wanberg for making that happen. Schindler sees the body of the little girl in the red coat that was walking through the Krakow street during the ghetto massacre. Consider this moment his official reformation. One of my favorite musical moments in the film comes much earlier than the immolation scene, 
when a woman pleads with Schindler to save her older parents from death. At this point, Schindler becomes aware that people are calling his factory a haven for Jews, and after an argument with his former accountant, Itzhak Stern, played beautifully by Ben Kingsley, by the way, he decides to bring the couple over to his factory from the labor camp. His decision is accompanied by a beautiful performance of the main theme on the guitar. This is the first time Schindler's theme plays in the film besides what we heard at the beginning of that 12-minute montage sequence. It's indicative that Schindler is starting to change and the slow transformation is depicted beautifully. There's a 10-minute sequence of the movie focused almost solely on the film's villain, a Nazi soldier named Amon Goeth, played so well by Rafe Fiennes. That sequence starts with Schindler trying to convince Goeth that there is some good in him, and what follows are scenes in which Goeth tries out his good side, only to succumb to his sadistic nature by shooting one of his servants in the head. There is absolutely no music in this sequence, and perhaps there was discussion of breaking up the tension, with a theme for Gaeth or something. I never really noticed the lack of music in that sequence until now, so rack that up to my deep study of the music as it is used in the film. There is that one scene when Gaeth confronts his maid, who he finds attractive, and tries to talk himself into kissing her. It's intercut with images of Schindler being serenaded by an attractive woman, so the duality of Schindler being romanced and Geth resisting the chance to love a Jewish woman is very stark, and the song the woman sings makes it more so. So I talked about Itzhak Perlman being the featured soloist in this film, but his violin doesn't appear until about two and a half hours into the film. It's when Schindler decides to buy as many Jews in the labor camp as possible in order to keep them from being put on trains to be killed in Auschwitz. The music accompanying this montage is also a great highlight of the film, and one that does require the music to be noticed in many instances. It's dominated by Schindler's theme as the list begins to take shape.
The music crescendos as Geth opens a suitcase filled with the money Schindler is paying to take the Jews out of his camp. Perlman's violin makes its debut in the film as the list is completed. The Remembrances theme, the theme for the Jewish people, is perfect for this moment since it's about them, as Stern says, the list is life. So that was just a warm-up for Isaac Perlman. His big moment in the score comes in the most heartbreaking and chilling scene of the film. Many question its inclusion, especially since, spoiler alert, all the women survived this torture. But like it or not, it's in the film, and it brings me to tears thanks largely to Perlman's interpretation of the music Williams wrote for him to perform. The women who were supposed to be on a train to Czechoslovakia find themselves in Auschwitz instead, getting their hair chopped off before presumably going into a room to be gassed to death. I have really no words to describe the notes pouring out of Perlman's violin, a melody that practically mimics the sobs of the women.
Now the women go into the room. The music takes a little turn into the macabre as the lights go out, accompanied by a hit on percussion and more strings. Water flows out of the shower heads to everyone's relief. Our tears of anguish turn into tears of happiness. The sound effects go away, leaving us only with Perlman's violin to close out this harrowing chapter of the film. I vividly remember watching this film in the theater around December 1993. It was unlike any experience I ever had. And adding to that was the piano performance of the main theme in the end credits.
That was John Williams himself performing that theme on the piano. It was the first time in a while he's been able to play piano on one of his scores, something that is difficult to do since he also was the conductor. But this was a solo piece, so no need to conduct anyone but himself. And what was stark for me with that piano performance is I remember crying in the movie theater the first time I heard this. And I hadn't cried in the movies in quite some time, so I was really, really emotional. After this piano performance, the Remembrances theme turns into a full concert-like piece to finish out the end credits. It's not as somber as Arlington from JFK, but I find it a fitting tribute to the millions who died in the Holocaust, while also celebrating the survivors. As I sat there in the theater in 1993 sobbing uncontrollably as Williams' touching piano performance affected me so strongly, the credit, Music by John Williams, came across the screen. I had just become fully aware of who John Williams was five months earlier during Jurassic Park, and seeing that the same man who had written such wonderfully inspiring music for Jurassic Park could also compose such delicate music for this film prompted me to make a mental note to learn more about him. This was before the internet offered the amount of content it does now, so my research of John Williams took me to the library, where I discovered that many movies I had loved since my childhood featured his music. I immediately rushed to the record store to gobble up as many CDs featuring John Williams' music as I could. My birthday was about six weeks after the opening of Schindler's List, and I treated myself to a CD called Kid Stuff which was a compilation CD of concert suites Williams conducted with the Boston Pops. Now, this CD came out in 1992, so there was no music from Jurassic Park or Schindler's List on it. But there was Star Wars, E.T., Superman, and a lot more that opened my ears and my mind to an entirely new world. And I never looked back after that. So if Jurassic Park opened the door to my introduction to film scores, Schindler's List was the film and score that kicked me through the door, 
and I am so thankful for that. Schindler's List was viewed as a gamble when it was suggested to Spielberg in 1985, but it turned out to make a huge profit off its $22 million budget, earning more than $300 million worldwide. And I bet five minutes after it debuted on December 15, 1993, people were certain it was going to win Spielberg his first Oscar. And he did indeed win that long-awaited Oscar, in addition to six other Academy Awards for the film. Yes, John Williams' score was one of the Oscar recipients in a year of so many wonderful scores. The music from The Fugitive by James Newton Howard and the music from The Firm by Dave Grusin are two of my favorite non-John Williams scores. And I tend to think that 1993 was one of the best years for film scores and the Oscar nominees were all well-deserving. The nominees for original score are Elmer Bernstein for The Age of Innocence, Dave Grusin for The Firm, James Newton Howard for The Fugitive, Richard Robbins for The Remains of the Day, John Williams for Schindler's List, and the Oscar goes to John Williams for Schindler's List. Thank you also very much. I want to thank for his friendship and support Ken Weinberg and for their great artistry, Itzhak Perlman and the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and for a man who always makes work fun and is a seeming unending source of inspiration, Steven Spielberg. Thank you. That was the biggest award for the score, but not the only one. John Williams won the Grammy for Best Motion Picture Soundtrack for Schindler's List, his first Grammy win in 10 years, and the first time he had won in this category since winning it six straight times from 1977 to 1982. I am surprised the track theme from Schindler's List was not nominated for the Grammy, as it's one of the most popular parts of the soundtrack and performed dozens of times yearly around the world. Of course, the score was nominated for the Golden Globe, but surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, given the weird taste of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, Williams lost to the score for Oliver Stone's Heaven and Earth by Japanese composer Kitaro. That was Stone's final movie in his Vietnam trilogy, and it did not do as well as Born on the Fourth of July and JFK. In fact, it barely registered in theaters and did not get any other major award recognition. Williams would not have been able to write the score for that film, given his immense responsibilities for the two Spielberg films coming out in 93, but you do have to wonder what he would have contributed and been able to finish out this trilogy. So we've come to the point in the episode that I know is going to cause a lot of discussion, and I know there will be lots of disagreements. Schindler's List, for me, marked the end of John Williams' golden age. And I know a lot of you believe it happened much earlier than that, but I believe it happened at the end of 1993. Though I tend to believe the start of this golden age happened either when Jaws premiered or just before that with Fiddler on the Roof, there is no doubt in my mind that Schindler's List was the end of it. And there's no better way to close out an era than with an Academy Award.
That's more than 20 years of writing instantly identifiable music, something none of his peers could even dream of attaining. Of course, Williams continued to write wonderful music for films after this, but not of the same level of public consciousness, mostly because many of the films were not big-budget mainstream movies. Perhaps Williams felt that there was no point in trying to stretch out the hot streak he was on after Schindler's List. He took all of 1994 off from writing film scores, though the Williams family got some notoriety that summer when his son Joseph was featured as the singing voice of the adult lion Simba in Disney's animated hit The Lion King. Joseph Williams is only featured in about two minutes of the movie, but it kept the streak of big hits alive for the Williams family. So John Williams might have been taking a break from film scores in 1994, but he wasn't sitting on a beach sipping margaritas. He was in his studio hammering out two concertos. One of them was a cello concerto that he wrote specifically for the virtuoso Yo-Yo Ma. And even though he wasn't the main conductor for the Boston Pops anymore, the Boston Symphony Orchestra commissioned this concerto to be performed by this group. With his work on Schindler's List done, Williams seemed to be excited to take on this new venture. He had been expressing a desire to write more concert pieces since 1990, and getting the invitation to write for one of the best cello players in history was too exciting to pass up. Here's what John Williams had to say about working with Yo-Yo Ma. Quote, Given the broad technical and expressive arsenal available in Yo-Yo's work, planning the concerto was a joy. I decided to have four extensive movements that would offer as much variety and contrast as possible, but that could be played continuously and without interruption. Here's a bit of the first of those four movements. This wasn't the first collaboration between John Williams and Yo-Yo Ma, who had performed together in previous concerts over the years. And it wouldn't be the last. Before he decided to get back to work with film scores, Williams turned in one more concerto, this one called The Five Sacred Trees, a work focused on the bassoon 
that was commissioned by the New York Philharmonic for its 150th anniversary in April 1995. As the title suggests, there are five movements in the piece, each written to personify a different tree from Celtic mythology. It's not as bombastic as the cello concerto, and it's great to hear soloist Judith LeClaire lend a voice to the bassoon. That performance you just heard was Judith LeClaire in a 1997 recording with the London Symphony Orchestra playing. I'm not sure why the New York Philharmonic wasn't able to do the official recording since it was a piece written for them, but it is nice to see Williams working with the London Symphony again after such a long hiatus. With the bassoon concerto out of the way, Williams got an invitation to get back into film scores from his friends Alan and Marilyn Bergman, who wanted Williams to write songs with them for the remake of the film Sabrina, with Harrison Ford and a rising star named Julia Ormond in the lead roles. So, back into the Hollywood game, Williams went, ready to take on his first film on this side of the Golden Age. And we'll talk about that film on the next episode. I really hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Baton. It was a lot of fun sharing my love of Schindler's List with you. And I hope you have gained a new appreciation of the score. Feel free to send me your thoughts about the score, about John Williams, or just about life in particular to me via email at jeffswim at aol.com or post a comment in the Podbean app. And of course, I always invite you to write a review of the show on Apple Podcasts as well. Thank you so much for tuning in, and until the next episode, the baton is down. <laughs>